Hello everyone and welcome to incredibly episode 26 of the Filthy Lip Out Golf Podcast with me, Kit Alexander and the legendary John E. Morgan and it is my absolute pleasure to introduce the world-renowned putting coach, putting guru to the best players on the planet, Mr. Phil Kenyon. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Kit. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me on. That was a grand entrance then, wasn't it? Was it was, bit... man. It was a big drum roll, that was. I, I like to build people <laughs> up and get the feeling and the excitement going. Cool. Okay, we did that. Thank you. Uh, Phil, you were over in Dubai recently watching your pupils, Matt Fitzpatrick, claim the DP World Tour Championship. Lee Westwood, of course, you also teach. He won the race to Dubai, uh, Order of Merit. Uh, how has this year been for you in very difficult circumstances, I imagine? Yeah, no, it's, it's been an unusual year, hasn't it? Uh, for everyone, myself, no different. Um, you know, travel has been restricted for me this year. So I've not travelled anywhere near as much as what you know, I, I normally do, which has been a negative in some ways, but also a positive, you know, been great to spend time at home with with family and you know I've got a four-year-old son so like this year has been great to spend time with him you know my relationship with him has gotten like so much better not that I thought it wasn't very good to start with but you know you, you know what it's like with kids you know the more you're around so that you know that's been good um and I, I guess like without traveling it's given me um a few opportunities to do some other things which I wouldn't normally have had the time to do so yeah, it's, it's been a weird year, but you just try and draw the positives from it, don't you? And, and do what, make the best out of it, which I've tried to do. But I'll be glad to see the back of it. I think we all will, to be fair, yeah. I mean, I want to go back to even before you were a putting coach, because I, I saw some pictures on the PGA Euro Pro Tours social media from earlier this year, from back in 2002, the year John was playing on the Euro Pro Tour as well. You were a player back then. So tell us a bit about your well, history, your, your playing career, and then how you got into the coaching. Uh, a player would be a very loose description. <laughs> just to let you know, he's just stole my line there. You know, oh, yesterday really? he has just oh. picked that one off me. So I've got nothing to ask you now. Bummer. Uh, um, go on, yeah, go on. No. <clears throat> I, I did play for a short period of time, um, you know, after I finished university, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a playing professional, like golf's been a passion of mine since I was a kid. And I played to a sort of decent level, amateur level, went to university and played in British university stuff, played well student games. And, and then when I graduated, I thought this is my opportunity. If I'm ever going to give it a go, you know, give it a go now. So I turned yeah. pro. I played for about five years, but really just sort of mini tour type stuff. At, at that time, it was MasterCard, which then kind of merged into EuroPro. I played some sort of challenge tour, and um, but never really did much good, really. You know, you mentioned John playing at the same time. John, I can vouch for, was a lot played to a lot higher standard than I did. Um, but um, it was a great experience for me because. Mm. I learned a lot about the game during that period of time, you know, what it's like actually trying to work on your game at the same time as compete. And I needed to work on my game. You know, I wasn't someone that was blessed with a lot of talent. Um, 
So I needed to find ways to get better if I was going to reach the goals that I w- I'd set myself. So it was a really good experience. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it, it was, you know, I was skint. So I didn't have a, a, a pot to pee in. Um, yeah, I exactly. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't take it back. No. Um, and then, but I was also very fortunate during that period of time as well. I, um, like a, a really close friend and a mentor of mine, Harold Swash, you know, I was, um, I worked alongside him kind of at the same time, um, helping him out, getting a little bit of paid work here and there whilst I was playing. Um, and at the time I was doing it for money and being around Harold, who I enjoyed because he was a family friend, but ultimately that paved the way for me to then, when I decided that enough was enough, hang up the clubs, it paved the way for me to take that step further and, and work more closely with him. And that's really how I got into sort of coaching full time. Nice. The people that you coach is, is incredible. I mean, I'm looking down in front of me, Rory McElroy, Justin Rose, you've worked with Lee Westwood, Matt Fitzpatrick, Henrik Stenson, Louis Eusthazen, Martin Keimer, Thomas Bjorn, Danny Willett, Tommy Fleetwood, Alex Noren, Colin Montgomery, Francesco Molinari, Darren Clark. That, that's yeah. just a snapshot of it. I mean, we've got some of the best golfers on the planet here and you have helped to shape their putting strokes. What is it like to work with some of these people? And especially because you're such a specialist coach, you're coming into a team that's presumably already existing there in terms of a general coach and performance analysts and all these kind of things these days. How do you draw the line of, of where your input is and how do you work with these people on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis? Um, it's probably a lot easier and more straightforward than what what you would think, really. Um, you, you, you get generally asked to do a job and you go in and you do it and then the other people yeah. within that team are fairly supportive of it. You obviously, you know your own boundaries, but... You know, my, my, my boundaries stick with a club that's no longer than 37 inches for the most part. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, if anyone sees me on the tee trying to teach someone how to drive the ball, then clearly I'm, I'm um, you know... Lost your marbles. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it, it's quite easy. I mean, obviously, there's a huge psychological component to it. Um, so sometimes when you're working within the, these teams, there will be like a psychologist who could be involved. Um, so you know, that would involve, you know, having to liaise or work with that other person. But for the most part, everyone's got the same goal and that is to, to help the player in question. So you kind of work together and you find ways and means to make it work. So uh, that aspect of it, I've never found particularly difficult, mm-hmm. um, because you, you're dealing with a bunch of other professionals who, like you say, have the same mindset. You know, the harder bit is, is doing your job well enough, um, but working within, you know, uh, a bigger framework of a team is, um, yeah, it's it's, um, it's not that difficult, and it's an enjoyable part of it actually to to work alongside other professionals. Mm-hmm. I, I learn a lot through. I have some of the greatest learning experience being at Ryder Cups, watching sort of Pete Cowan uh, talk to someone from off the ledge on a Wednesday night, you know. Uh, seeing how, how they deal with that person, interpersonal communication skills. So being part of teams is, is a fun part of it. How's your uh, email address going at the moment? I mean, they must be sending you videos after videos because with all this trying time and everything like that, I mean, you're not really able to go and see them, are you? So 
I mean, you must be getting videos left, right, and center and going through it. And what kind of feedback do you give to, say, someone like uh, Westwood? Because he's just gone through a big transformation. Yeah, I mean, like a, a lot of the clients that I have at the moment, I've worked with for a, a number of years now. So um, it's, um, you know, generally a lot of stuff that you're doing with them is maintenance, you know, supervision of practice type stuff when you're at events. So um, it's not like I feel like at times there's a sort of um, a, a huge pressure in terms of sending videos like what's wrong you know, a lot, of, a lot of times guys, they have ownership and can work stuff out. Um, but, you know, this year, obviously, we've you've had to rely a, a lot more on sort of remote instruction. Yeah. Well, technology is great nowadays, isn't it? You know what I mean? WhatsApp, exactly. so easy to send a video. And then the stuff that could be done with, you know, remotely through Zoom. A few of the, my, my, uh, the clients that I work with, they have, you know, various sort of putting technologies that they can use to capture data and they'll share that with me. So you can, you, you kind of get by. It's, it's not too bad. Um, and if you, if you can't be at an event and, and you can't travel, the least you can do is, is, you know, try and um, make sure all that stuff works and respond accordingly, no matter what time of night it is or <laughs> no matter how many gin and tonics you've had. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, is, is there a, if there's a certain amount of drinks I've had where I probably shouldn't be offering feedback to this player about their putting stroke. I'll wait until the morning when I've sobered up. Do you have a little limit where you're like, I'll, I'll just wait? Um, yeah, no, I, I've not actually worked that one out yet. But I, I do, a good, good story was um, last year, had a um, had a weekend away with uh, some friends. We went to Ibiza. And uh, it was about one o'clock at night. I'm out in Ibiza and I, I get a phone call, get some videos and a phone call of Gary Woodland, who's at the memorial, having put poorly. And I, there's me oh. in Ibiza on the phone trying to help him. Did you admit it and be like, look, Gary, I've had a few drinks here. I'm in Ibiza. So, uh, or did you just try and absolutely keep straight face, be an uber professional? I can't remember, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> good luck. I mean, no, good luck. <laughs> John, I'm interested to hear your sort of philosophy on putting because obviously we play a fair bit together. You were a brilliant golfer, an unbelievable ball striker, but I know putting is something that through the years has has vexed you somewhat. You now use a claw grip, which I've adopted as well and, and really enjoy. But how do you look at putting, John? Well, it's weird, right? So this, this actually, this is right up your street, Phil, because Harold Swash was the man. I was at England training camp, and this is the first time someone ever made me think about putting, which, just tell me, is that a good thing or a bad thing, first of all? Well, it could be a bad thing. It, it really depends on the person, doesn't it? Well, I, it, me personally, I'm a bit simple upstairs. So, you know, for me, having system overload with a few things going on in my head was not good for me so anyway Harold gave me kind of an assessment on the putting green and you know I found putting was quite one of my strengths because I was just a field putter I'd just seen shape seen the borrows and I'd just seen the ball just fall in the hole and yeah it was just it was very similar to my style of game and then um, questioned it really and then I started to kind of become a little bit more rigid uh, I remember going to Q school and I remember having a back backstroke about that far even on 20 footers it was like you know and it was like you know I find it really really tough um then gradually I went 
played with Vijay Singh and went to the belly putter. Um, I remember having a putting lesson off a of tiger and, you know, asked him, you know, what he thought about it. and really, and honestly, it was all about feel for tiger, nothing else. It was all feel, um, you know, he said, you know, if it's left to right, right to left, downhill, uphill, it's not going in if it's not the right touch anyway. So, I mean, that was pretty black and white and simple for me. Um, and then I found the, the, you know, the pencil grip, you know, just tucking the thumb underneath and having the finger down the side. And really, and honestly, I've never looked back since. I think it's a marvellous um, putting grip and I've had it for about six, seven years. But, you know, when you're really struggling, my eyes, my problem is, is my eyes. My eyes just want to look you know, straight to where that hole is. And then obviously yeah. the head wants to come up and then the shoulders start coming up and then you, you know, you're up and out of it. And that's when you get the short backstroke and you, uh, it does your head in because you're a little worldy after worldy. And I, I'm not, an amazing culprit for this because the man, I've, as you well know, Kit, I bigged him up all the time. I'm a massive fan of Lee Westwood, right? Big, big fan. And the only thing that's let him down has been his putting. And now just seeing him with that uh, pencil grip or claw, whatever he's using it just looks amazing. Really does feel. How have you worked with that? And how did you come up with that, bud? Well, you know, I, I worked with Lee for sort of a, a number of years on and off. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when you compare putting to the other parts of his game, it, it's not necessarily quite reached the same heights. But I think last year, um, after the Dunhill, he struggled at the Dunhill. And mm. uh, we... Um, I think he had a long chat with Thomas Bjorn, who's a good friend of his, and I've worked with Thomas for over a number yeah. of years. Thomas encouraged um, Lee to come down to the studio and really kind of relook at things. And uh, as a consequence, Lee, we had a great day at the studio just after the Dunnell where we explored a few different things, one of which was that grip. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just kind of seemed to really help him and, and it clicked. It helped him with a few things technically. And um, I think, yeah, he, he's put a lot better since then. Also, I think Lee is stuck at the same things. Uh, you know, historically, he, he would tinker. He, he'd be the first to admit that he's been a tinkerer. And I think he's in a really good place with his life and career at the moment, isn't he? You know, he's, he's oh, yeah. um, Definitely. happy happiest I've ever seen him yeah. uh, and as a consequence that translates really well in everything else doesn't it so he's you know, stuck at things he's been patient he's been a lot more process driven and I think as a consequence he's gotten more confidence with his putter and he started to put better he's had some really good putting tournaments over the last 12 months and you know I actually didn't see the final few holes of last week until I got home so I didn't see his finish other than sort of seeing it on the scorecard. I, I was out on the course and I watched him. He had a really good chance on 15 and I saw him miss that. And then I, I went to see where Matt was. And then I saw that his final few holes, sort of sky plussed it and watched it again this week. And he held yeah. some really good putts, didn't he, under pressure, which really, when you look back, won in that order of merit because, I mean, one shot either way. Yeah. You know, great put 16, 17. And a tricky one on 18, great up and down, you know. So, well, that's yeah. it, though, Phil. That's it, though, Phil. He made it look simple, can I say, which yeah. is a very big step for Lee, I think. He made it for, for the punter looking in, watching him, it looks simple, which was, 
you know, is the icing on the cake for me. You know what I mean? I'm looking forward to yeah. the Masters in April now. Come on, Masters. Well, when, when Lee Westwood's on form and doing things well, he does make it look simple, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, as he builds confidence with his putting, um, hopefully that will translate into that part of the game. But, yeah, he, he's improved a lot. I think he still can get better. There's still work that he needs to, to do. He's got to work hard even just to stay where he's at. But, um, you know, he's, he's, he's been good. We had a good couple of days just prior to the race thereby where he, even though he had a bad back and was doubtful as to whether he'd actually play. You know, we yeah. had a good two or three hours on at the Els Club on the Saturday. So, you know, he, he's putting the work in. Um, and he's reaping the, the, the rewards. I was really pleased for him. I think, you know, it's a great, it was a great victory for him, you know, for, to merit, you know, the, a, a body of work over the length of the season. Yeah, 100%. Brilliant. It was interesting Brilliant John there, who's so field-based. Obviously, historically, putting has been seen as a field part of the game, but more and more science and technique and analysis has come into that over the last 10, 15, 20 years. For you as a coach, how do you kind of reconcile those two very different areas of it being absolute feel for some people and not wanting to get too technical, but ultimately you need the technique to underpin a being a good putter? How do you approach that when you're teaching someone? Well, you've got to get, you've got to, get to know the person, haven't you, first? Mm. Exactly. Um, you know, to appreciate how much information and what level of information they can process and how they play golf and what level of thought. Because if you've got a player who plays by feel and is not very conscious about what they're doing, then you, you can't overload them with too much information, can you? Uh, because they're, they're going to go so far away from their, their, um, their intuitive way that they play and that's difficult as a coach I think it's difficult whenever anyone decides that they want to get better because naturally they're going to expose themselves to a level of information mm -hmm. uh, but that's the, that's the coach's job isn't it to be able to yeah. teach the person and and uh, I think it's it's difficult at times I know I've made mistakes in the past where I've given too much information to players and been too yeah. hands-on and then there's also times when you 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 kind of wish you'd been, you know, you've given a player more or, you know, done the opposite. And experience helps you, but at the same time, you're just making a judgment in time. But I would say the fundamental thing you need to do is to get to know the player first of all. So I guess one thing that I've, I've kind of learned as I've got, you know, more experience is to not jump in too quickly. Yeah. But to hopefully if you're afforded that time, you can then start to work out how best to, Put your inf information across and how best to sort of shape that player but it, yeah it's a it's a big question mark and an important part of, of uh, for any coach i'm gonna put you on the spot now phil i'm gonna put you on there man i mean you've come up with an amazing couple of gizmos boss for um for people like myself now who don't play you know want to practice at home you know and go through a nice couple of drills which is the one kind of gizmo? I mean, this is for you to self-promote yourself, mate, and uh, some of your gizmos. But if they, I mean, you've come up with a, a fair few few of them. Which one are you most proud of? If I if I could, if you could label one of them, which one would you be more proud of? Um, it's a it's a tough one, really. The 
I think the, one of the things that we created over the years was sort of this uh, putting template, which um, I think is a really practical and useful tool, which I'm quite proud because it's had a lot of success and there's a lot of guys that use it, yeah. which, um, which is a putting template which you place on the floor. And that was designed to, to enable players to, to self-monitor. You know, it wasn't designed for people to try and replicate how the stroke should look. But, you know, when you when you you're hitting putts and you're kind of calibrating your stroke on a daily basis. If you videoed yourself from above a template, you'd be able to reference where your stroke was. So that, um, you know, if you're putting really well, go and video yourself from a template, you'd see where your stroke was. And then you yeah. could use that as a, you know, build a library of that and use it as a reference. So I guess, you know, that, that that's proved to be quite a popular device, which I'm quite proud of. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like training aids because I think that putting's quite a, it's a difficult part of the game, really. You, you, you're dealing with, you know, fractions of a degree. And I think how you structure your practice is important. You need feedback um, to help, help you learn. So any of the training aids that we've ever designed has been based around giving players feedback. Now, obviously, mm. you can use them poorly and rely on them too much, but they're not designed for that. They're designed just to help kind of get a, give a player some feedback that they can then take that feedback, create a feel, and then go play with a feel. Yeah, right, brilliant. What do you brilliant. think makes a great putter? It, it, I get asked that question a lot. and I, mm-hmm. you know, I think if, if you looked at great putters, you'd, you'd find it, you'd, you'd struggle to find, you'd struggle to find um, some technical... Um, you know, common technical traits. I think, you know, it's one part of the game that's, I think it lends itself to, you know, individual characteristics. You know, it's not like you're trying to generate power, which, and there's a fair amount of physics involved in that. You just, it's touch and feel and precision. Um, And it's more of a fine motor skill, isn't it? So I think it lends itself to individual characteristics. But if you look at great putters, they've got skill Clearly, they can start a ball on the line. They can control their speed, and they read greens well. You know, I've never seen a bad, a great putter who can't read a green. Um, so, you would define great putters as having those three skills. Yeah, and they could use a variety of different techniques to um, display those skills, mm-hmm. but ultimately, they possess those skills. And I think as coaches, if we can look at trying to develop skill within our players rather than trying to like, you know, perfect technique. Mm-hmm. Then I think the common things that I would say great putters have, and it's more of a skill-based assessment. On the flip side, what are the most common mistakes you see? And not just amongst pros, but also your average handicap golfer. Well, uh, you know, amongst professional level, I- I'd say the common mistake probably between the best putters and the worst putters would be green reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, I, I come across a lot of professional players who are pretty good technically, um, but just don't read greens very well. And I think also it's, one, it's the one variable which is challenged from week to week. You know, you've got different speed of greens, which is going to affect break. You've got different grass, you've got different slopes, gradients, you've got different visuals. So it's, it's one part of the game that's ex- extremely challenged from week to week whereas your technique is your technique you take that from wherever you wherever you go and 
and, and, and speed control for the most part is technically driven. So yeah, I, I would say uh, at the highest level, green reading. And then I think um, at the club golfer level, you, you, see, you, you see a lot of different issues, but I would say, you know, they don't have a consistent start line. Yeah. And then as yeah. a compliment, if you can't start the ball consistently, even if you have a, like a little push bias or a pull bias, but you do the same every time, mm. then if you could do the same every time, you can start to learn the other aspects. You know, you could start to feel where you might need to be on the right to left put to manage that pull or vice versa. Yeah. But if you, if you got it coming out like the red arrows, how do you read a green then? And, and um, your green reading like development will be hindered by it because you're never going to get good feedback. So I'd say like poor start line, really poor green reading. And then for the average golfer, it's then like, uh, you know, pot luck when they go out on a Saturday, if they hold putts, you know, the stars need to align. Um, but, I would, you know, obviously it gets a bit more refined as the players get better. And I would say the one standout one would be green reading. It's interesting that because I always feel that it's my pace that lets me down. I think I start the ball reasonably well. I consider myself a good green reader. But of those three elements that you've spoken about, I mean, I'm a seven handicapper, so I'm, I'm a reasonable yeah. golfer, but by no means a pro. I, it's pace that I really struggle with. Would you consider that quite unusual then from a, a handicap golfer? Well, not, not really, because, I mean, you've, you've asked me a question as a whole. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of different golfers, and in, individually, it can it can vary from player yeah. to player, and that's it. Like everyone's, because I'll often get asked the question, "What's more important, uh, line speed or read?" Well, it'll vary on the player, ultimately. So everyone's got their own strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll put something to you where sometimes I'll play. I'll say to me, oh, "I'll leave a lot of putts short." Mm -hmm. Well, very often, with in that scenario, you could have a player who's reading high lines or when they get on a breaking putt because they're real feel orientated they aim so much up the slope the yeah. only way that they could make that putt would be the softest pace now if you if you're intuitively then trying to die the ball into the hole what the chances are you're going to leave it short yeah. probably more than someone who's picking a low line so yeah. pace can be so much tied to green reading or your intuitive aim that you might say, I have a pace control issue, but it could come from other reasons. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's, you know, exactly what's happening with you, Kit, but often yeah. you, you will see that. But just as a whole, I would say, you know, the sense of where people need to start mm. the ball um, from a greener yeah. perspective at elite level would be the one hindering thing. But yeah, you're right. You know, um, it could be on a one-to-one -one individual lesson level yeah some, someone could have a real issue with start line someone speed someone read but on the whole that's what you know i would see oh i got one for you i got one for you phil <laughs> i got one for you phil right so ego so you're my putting coach right i've come yeah. back from america this is a true story right i'm just yeah. i'm just putting you in this equation quickly right so come back i'm gonna play forest of ireland i get the yeah. yips for the first time right I come off the golf course and I am distraught. I've been putting around the hole for fun, you know, anti-clockwise, you know, just jabbing around the hole, four putts, three putts, you name it, I'm doing it. 
a foot out, I am shaking like a leaf. I come in, feel, feel, man, Jesus Christ, man, what, jeez, what am I going to do? The game's over, dude. You know, what, what are you going to tell me? What are you going to tell me? You know, I mean, I'm chucking all the toys out of the pram. I think the game's over. It's all finished. You know, you must have had players like this already come up to you, you know, you know, just, you know, their brains burning. What would you say to someone like me? Well, that's just it, <laughs> get you to put left-handed, probably. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I might swing left-handed, to be fair, so it might work. Well, if anyone, listen, if anyone could do it, John could do it, couldn't he? <laughs> well, I think, it, obviously, if you, you're saying you've got a yip at that time, and, and yips, yeah, at that, you know, yips could have a technical manifestation, and and you know, you mentioned about having like um, you know change to a claw or pencil grip or whatever. Mm. And I, yips, for for the most part, I, I would say like the yips will manifest themselves in the dominant hand of a player. Yeah. So if you're like right-handed, that's your trail hand. In fact, it's very rare that I would see a yip in, in the opposite hand. Mm-hmm. So, like, your dominant hand, trail hand for, for a lot of players. You know, I think most, most right-handed golfers will be trail side dominant. So, that's where you see a lot of these sort of funky grips help players manage that. And exactly. you know, there's something going on there neurologically where it's, you know, it's triggering something where all of a sudden they can start to, to manage that tremor. So, it could be that at that time, you would try and find a physical way to manage that. Um, and for a lot of players, that can help. But yeah. clearly, there's a mental aspect to it at times. Um, and at that point, I would, going back to your team thing, the team question, that I would duly pass that one over to the psychologist of the team. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I know I would. John. I know I would. I've got a feeling in John's team, the psychologist's getting a lot of work. Look, um, yeah. Yeah, I, had, I had Bob Rotella, um, mate, John Pates, I had them all. I went and stayed at Bob Rotella's house and he had that indoor putting green. Oh, yeah. mate, I was in, it was in my element, you know, reading through his uh, um, visitor's book, uh, people that have been there. Jeez Louise, it was like the Bible for me. Uh, couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I've got I've got a great Bob Rotella story actually, which I can't I probably couldn't repeat on this podcast. Oh, you, uh, oh I got one as well. Go on, you can do it. I'll do it if you do it. So I went with a I was working with a, a client, and he went to see Bob at the time, and they said, "Do you want to come in and sit in?" And like when I was a kid, I'd read, uh, read all his books. I thought, "Yeah, I'd love to," you know. So we go <laughs> in, and what? I started talking about various things and Bob said, well, I'll give you an analogy. He said, when you go to the toilet, do you ever get a hard on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was, and basically what Bob was trying to explain was that your body knows the scenario and knows how to react and you've got to trust your instinct. You know, and exactly. in that example, it wouldn't get it wrong. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit less oh, real, as an analogy, but it was interesting nonetheless. It makes the point. It makes the point. Oh, oh, mate, it was... We have to edit that out of the podcast, or can that stay? <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving that in. I'm leaving that in. We've had worse. We've had far worse. We've had ten times worse, mate. Ten times worse. You're all right, yeah. Phil. You're you're fine, Mucker. You're fine. <laughs> 
But yeah, I, I, I love my time with Bob, actually. Such a lovely fella. And he never forgets anyone. I've I seen him like 10 years later at Troon and he's come straight up to me. He's, hey, you are. Hello, John. I haven't seen you in 10 years. I mean, such a lovely friend. Knows everyone he's ever worked with. Um, such a great rapport with the players as well, isn't he? And everyone. Yeah, I think he's one of the more well-respected people out there. So yeah, nice guy. Yeah, top bloke, mate. Top bloke. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people listening to this who might not be able to get out and about and play as much golf as they might be able to, weather and other things going on. Um, but putting is one thing we can all practice when we're at home. You know, you get your putter in from indoors, you find a smooth bit of carpet or lino if you're replicating the John's got his set up at home. For people yeah. that are listening and think, well, I'm going to make the most of this time or I've got a few hours over Christmas, perhaps, or New Year when the family aren't around, I can practice my putting. Are there any particular drills or things you would tell them to focus on that would be the best thing they could do to improve their putting at home? Well, I think the one thing that you can work on indoors is obviously your technique. Um, so, and then when you do get out and you get a chance to play, you kind of don't want to be worrying about your technique. You want to be getting out and enjoying just putting, don't you? And so by boxing off a little bit of technical work indoors, I think that can stand you in, in good stead. And if you think about going back to the sort of the skills set thing we talked about before, if you, if you think about what the job of your technique is to, to do, it's to be able to start the ball online. So, you know, I, I think like doing start line stuff um, indoors, you know, I, I like using sort of putting gates where you've got different degrees of error that you're trying to put the ball through. And that'll give you a real test of your ability to start the ball online and if you struggle to start the ball online then you have to then sort of look at what aspects of your technique are letting you down and that's where you then might search to try and improve those aspects so um yeah so start line stuff indoors really getting on top of your technique and in particular you know your setup stuff like that i think you can you can do a good job of that this time of year well, that, um, do you know that, um, you know, the old one, two, three finger, fourth finger thing and standing along, getting your balance and everything like that? I mean, is that, is that a big help, do you think, on reading greens for players? Do you believe in something like that? I think, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've used Aimpoint over the years with, um, with different players. I think, uh, you know, some players, the way that they've learned to play golf, they just see, they see the line. You know what yeah, it's like. Yeah, of course they do. You know? Yeah. And exactly. they feel aligned. They've just inherently like uh, built up an awareness. Whereas some people have don't have that. You know, so where do you start with green reading? And well, yeah, exactly. aim, aim point can be really beneficial for a lot of people. Um, so particularly, you know, weekend warriors who don't have a lot of time to practice, don't have that memory that we have because yeah. we've been put in since we were a kid. You know, we don't yeah. have that feel and intuition. So it, it can help that type of player, I, I think, certainly. But then there's other players that I've used it with or elements of it with that have really helped them. You know, so like Justin Rose, is, he's improved his putting a lot of, in recent years. And a, a, a large part of that, I think, is his um, how he's used elements of aim point to help him with his green reading. So, mm. yeah, there's, there's a lot that can be taken from it. It, it sometimes gets a bit of a bad rep at times. Mm. But if you look into it and and you know use use bits of it accordingly, it can help a lot of players. So um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good framework and a good system. 
I don't see anyone doing the plumb bob anymore, mate. I don't see anyone doing the plumb bob anymore. What's going on there? Because I don't think it works really, does it? <laughs> there you go, isn't it? There you go. Old wives' tale. Best putter I've ever seen, probably David Howell. Uh-huh. Yeah. Think, uh huh. Yeah. See, in recent years, the stats have improved in Europe, but there was a period of time where we didn't have really good stats in Europe. But um, I worked with David for for a number of years, and we kept stats for his performance personally, which you could um, relate to PGA Tour stats and a PGA Tour level of performance. And he, he, he had a phenomenal like run going um, for a few years. So like in terms of working closely or seeing, you know, uh, close up, um, you yeah. know, one of the better putters, then I would say David Howell, he, he's phenomenal. Um, and he knew it as well. Like he had a deep, like he had a belief he didn't know it in an arrogant way, yeah. but he knew it was a strength and he was confident with it. And he looked at himself as being what, you know, one of the best putters. So, you know, which was uh, obviously positive. Um, so, yeah, David Howell would be definitely one of them. That trust well, on the greens, though, isn't it? John, go on. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say Fitzy because, I mean, I, I've had to give Fitzy a few uh, winners' interviews. I, I wasn't there, obviously, at. Uh, Dubai, but I like what he uses the putter he uses, and he's got a new pattern on it. And then he's got—is he been able to buy the rights of that that kind of putter that wasn't being made anymore? Is that right, Phil? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, a second like Fitzy's one of the one of the better putters. Yeah, that I've worked with, and I would say currently he finished second last year on the PGA Tour stats. Um, and yeah, he he is up until um, this year. He has always used a yes putter, yeah. and he, he first started using that when he was 15, and that's when I first met him um, and started to work with him. So I've known Matt over a number of years, and uh, he's always used that style of putter and that that brand of putter. And I think you know the the company no longer exists now, and he he had like a few issues with um, stuff getting damaged in transit. You know, shafts getting broken, hoses getting bent. And uh, um, yeah, based a, a company, Betanardi, they um, they made a um, a putter for him, which replicated the Seagroove pattern, because the, that that mm. Seagroove um, was no longer um, it no the patent on it had run out, so um, yeah. they were able to uh, copy that um, configuration that design, and Matt's been using it. Ever since, yeah, and, and you know, puts well with it. I must admit, I putted with a Seagrew putter for about six years. I absolutely loved it, mate. Absolutely loved it. So I know yeah. where he comes from. But I remember giving him an interview after he won um, in Sweden, Nordea Masters. And uh, yeah, I said, Is Chubby going to get you? He was with Chubby at the time, and he was saying, I said, uh, Is he going to get you a sponsorship deal, uh, deal with a Hoover company? And he was just laughing his head off because <laughs> I said, You're just hoovering up every, you know, on the greens like for fun. I mean, he just puts so well, and he makes it look like I say. He makes it look simple, you know. It just make it just looks like he's got all the time in the world in his putting stroke, which me personally looks is, is the biggest thing. When you look at Tiger in his prime, you look at Phil when he he was, you know, playing his best golf. It just looked very rhythmical and soft, and loads yeah. of time, 
and he looks like one of those. You know, I, I mean, you've been to the biggest events on the planet: Ryder Cups, Major Championships, the Masters, the Open. What are your favourite moments or memories in the game that stand out for you? Oh, well, I mean, naturally, they're not the missed cuts or getting a bollocking when someone's put it well, badly. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, so it's, it's obviously when, you know, it's at the other end, isn't it, when you've yeah. been lucky enough to share, you know, someone's kind of winning moment and, and the, the glories of it. Um, yeah, I mean, immediate. I mean, I, I, I'm, like, massive fan of the Open, personally, of all the majors. I mean, all the majors are great. I, I love each one of them for different reasons. Like, I mean, the US Open, although when I was a kid, I was never a massive fan of the US Open, but going to work there as a coach, the way they do it, the way they look after your coaches and the challenge of the courses and that, I've, I've learned to like, love that. But for me, just for the, everything about it, you know, for what it means to me as a, as a kid growing up, trying to qualify and playing it, you know, watching it on TV, Seve, you know, Faldo, all that. The Open for me is like one of my favourite yeah. events. So I, I just get like the opportunity to go and work there is enough for me. Well, then, you know, I, I've been fortunate that I've worked with three Open winners, um, Darren Clark, Henrik and, and Francesco. So, yeah, just sort of being there and uh, experience. Unfortunately, with Clark, he had actually gone home and I watched it on TV when he won, um, which was, I mean, it was great for Clark. He, yeah, from a selfish point of view, you know, I wish I'd have been there. Yeah. So when, when Henrik won, I was actually lucky to be there. And which, so that was amazing, really. And then obviously with Francesco, um, he came in and it looked at the, at the time that, it, you know, it could be a playoff and he had to sort of keep himself ready. So he went to the putting green and then I naturally followed him. And then there was me, Peo and his caddy and, and Fran on the green when Fran, you know, was yeah. announced the winner. Um, yeah. So that was a great moment because when he turns around, you know, you're, you're the only person there, you know. Um, so... That that was a that was yeah that would be an, a, an amazing experience, and then um, you know Ryder Cups are obviously great. I mean I've got great memories as a kid. My dad took me down to the, the Ryder Cups of the Belfry as a kid. So yeah, I mean they they were awesome. Um, so then to go to go back and be able to coach there, you know, and I mean that was amazing. Like the the France. Ryder Cup was amazing just because of the atmosphere. I, I've never experienced anything like it at a sporting event. Um, that was amazing. And, and to be part of like um, that support staff, we got really well looked after by Thomas. You felt really like a part of the team. And then the guys I played with, uh, sorry, guys I was, I was sort of coaching and, and, and there with, they all played well and, and sort of were a big part of that success. So that was an amazing week really um it, it felt like like i was at home two weeks after i'd still not kind of come back down to work <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but i'd say like the opens and the rider cups would be you know particularly sort of strong memories you know i just wonder awesome. with the francesco one you're stood there on the green what does he turn and say to you because obviously the the shoring up the putting was a, a massive part of what helped to turn it help him become a major champion as well you were there any special words remember. for you because of that? No, I, I literally could not remember <laughs> what was said. I mean, you're kind of like just going through the motions, really. I, I, I cannot 
I cannot remember. I, I was probably more nervous than he was, I would say. Um, but I can't, I could not recall what we actually spoke about on that green. But because... I, can remember, I can remember him turning round. Yeah. And we, you know, us embracing and then turning to walk off and pale being there. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, but I can't remember what, what was said. Because because uh, Tiger was firing all guns behind you, did you think, oh my God, here we go again, Tiger's going to do something? Well, Tiger actually played with Francesco, so they, yeah, exactly. they, they finished at the same time. I think at the, at the time, it was uh, Xander. I think Xander was playing the last with a That's chance it. to That's like, hold his second shot or something. Yeah. 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 Something yeah, it's one of those scenarios that were likely to happen, but you have to prepare accordingly. <laughs> yeah, you can't be seen to be high-fiving while there is even the slimmest glimmer of hope. You've got to stay in the, focused in the game. Um, well, for the, new, for, the, for the new bloods coming through, Phil, right, that are going to be listening to this podcast over Christmas and probably getting their first set of golf clubs off their mum and dad or something like that under the, you know, under their, uh, from Santa Claus or whatever. So, you know, if... Um, Work ethic, right? So you've you work with amazing players. I mean, who's the biggest sponge out there? And you know, meaning wants all the input he can possibly take. But then also, what does it take? You know, how many hours do these guys actually do? Just to give an insight to the kids at home that are trying to be aspiring professionals, how many how many hours? It's no secret that work ethic is important, and all of the players that I've worked with, that you know, the successful players, they. They have an amazing work ethic. They work really hard. In fact, you know, I was I had a I was talking with Martin Keimer last week actually in Dubai, and we were I forget what day it was. It was Thursday, or Friday um, in Dubai, and um, the driving range at the bottom of the driving range is uh, sort of at the the academy. Now, I, t I actually taken my clubs last week. And I, at the end of the day, I've gone down to the private academy. It's like Pete Cairns Academy, and I'm hitting some balls there. Yeah. And then, lo and behold, Martin Keimer and Henrik Stenson, this is like about half six at night. They've been there all day. They've hit balls. Then they've played 18 holes. Then they've hit balls to warm down. And both of them have come down to the bottom of the academy to go to the gym. Martin Karam has got his personal training there, like personal trainer, and they're doing a load of weights, heavy weights, Henrik's on the bike. And I was saying to Martin on the green the following day, you know, people don't see that. You know, they don't, they nope. see the glamour and they see like, you know, the, the glory of it, but they don't see that bit where, you know, at seven o'clock at night, he's pounding the gym after being at the Gold Cup all day, no matter how badly or how well they've played. So, Work ethic is good. You need a strong work ethic. And these guys have been doing that for a long period of time. If you look at Henrik, how long he's been out there grinding, working hard. But then just as important as work ethic would be how smart that you work. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's really uh, important and probably more significant than the, the amount that you work. So if you look at, you know, like Justin Rose, like he's a real consummate professional, professional mm. like Tommy, Francesco, Henrik, they, Martin, they're all smart about how they go about their work. Nothing's yeah. taken to chance. You know, they'll, they'll have a support team around them. They'll lean on different people. 
you know, some some more than others. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing it yourself now, John. Like the the kind of like the the team aspect of golf has gotten bigger. You know, there's more yeah. specialists and 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 these professionals will lean on them because they're looking for that extra edge, aren't they? Um, oh, exactly. But ultimately, it's the ones that take the information, uh, you know, have, take an ownership over it, that then, you know, go and do, go and do great things with. Um, so working smart, taking ownership of that, that would be the most important thing. But obviously, work ethic, the willingness to get out of your bed when it's when it's pissing it down, yeah. and, and get out there and, and you know do your stuff. So that was a trick I, I seen a cracking one from uh, Chris Wood last year actually there's a kid on his putting green at Long Aston Golf Club and he stuck a brolly down the back back of his thing here and jammed it into the bottom, at top of his trousers and had the brolly over and hanging it peered down in rain puddles everywhere and he didn't leave there for hours I mean that is what you it's like I mean I was like that I was like that as a kid you couldn't get enough it didn't matter what the weather was like you're right there until you you you, you know until light went that is for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, Woody shared that photo with me. I mean, it's it's intrinsic in it in in, in certain people, and, and other people yeah. struggle struggle with that. I mean, Woody, God, you know, Woody works as hard as anyone at the game, doesn't he? And, Massive. Uh, you know, if you've got that, it'll serve. You, like I say, if you align that with working smartly, then you'll give yourself the best chance. Totally agree. Just one final thing before we let you go, Phil, because you've been so generous with your time. You yeah. mentioned at the start that you'd had the chance to focus on a couple of other projects as well this year. What have you been working on and what's going on at the moment and into 2021? Um, yeah, well, I guess the one, one sort of positive from a, a work perspective this year is we launched an online academy, um, which we had the time to do this year. I had the idea in, in recent years to be able to do something like this, but never the time or the, the impetus to do it. So during lockdown, we, we filmed a lot of content and we put together over sort of 300 videos and, and launched an online program where, and, it, and it's aimed at the at regular golf, but it's aimed at anyone that wants to improve their own putting. It's not aimed at coaches or specialist players or you know elite players it's aimed at anyone that just wants to it's um there's a individual aspect to it so you can go on take an individual assessment go through sort of a questionnaire and go through various tasks and then the information that comes from that will design a personalized program over a sort of 12 weeks um and around that your annual uh, membership gives you access to like you say over 300 videos to supplement your sort of education and training so that's had a good response that's it's been an enjoyable project actually to get involved in this year and um yeah we've had a good response and you know uh, an active membership so far so that's been keeping me busy as well awesome where can people find that phil so that if they, if they go on to philkenyanputting.com and that will be the, that's the academy homepage, and there's plenty of information on there for people to find out more Great stuff. Awesome. Phil, thank you so much for giving us your time today. So interesting to chat. Uh, so for everyone to work on at home as well there, a few little putting tips. Um, thank mm -hmm. you always, everyone, for listening to the Filthy Lip Out. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at Filthy Lip Out. Uh, you can like and subscribe and leave reviews and star ratings wherever you do listen to your podcast. We really appreciate every one of those. 
Stay safe out there, everybody, and we will see you next year.